Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are my sunshine. Incredible as they seem are not the results of mass hysteria. I only... You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. So, you've come after all. We'll have a seat, anywhere you like. Georgie, another two. What's that? Nonsense, take the drink. Or hells, don't if you don't like. I'll just drink it myself otherwise. This is the only place I could think to meet you, so... I'm sorry if it's not to your liking. There is a certain charm to it, but... It takes some time to notice. Though I suppose it doesn't matter, you're the one coming to me, after all. <laughs> it may be uh, dark and dingy, but it's home. At least until Georgie kicks me out at the end of the night. But that's nothing for you to think about. No, you've come to hear an old man tell a story he doesn't want to tell. Oh yes, I won't be shy in saying that I don't want to tell you all this, and that it's none of your damn business. But since you seem hell-bent on visiting the Blasted Cove, I see it as my responsibility to convince you otherwise. Or I suppose it's the Green Cove you're interested in. The old name before the new one took. It's just a few miles north of Flowers Cove. But you knew that. Names are no matter, though. 
blasted and ruinous is what I'll keep calling it for all my years. I'm surprised you found me. The first time, the other day, I mean. I haven't worked in shipping or trading or any kind of public work for a very long time. This town is the only place where all memory of me hasn't washed away. And that's the way it ought to be. But you... You're persistent. Now tell me, what draws you to that place? Were you raised here as a child, wandering to the cliffs in your youth to throw rocks at the crumbling caves past the inlet? Did your elders tell you to never go near it, and you've just never shaken that childish want to disobey? Or have you passed by it in the middle of the night, and seen a dim pale light shining through the water, and shining through the cracks in the rock face? Or have you just heard stories of all that, and you fancy yourself some kind of explorer? It doesn't matter, I suppose. I'll tell you what you want to know, but only in the hopes that it'll dissuade you from your course. When I was young, well... Not young, but younger. I was captain of the Rosemary. She wasn't the biggest ship in the port, but she was sturdy and she was fast. A ship like that could do anything. She could be used for trade, for fishing, expedition, the whole lot. It was the first two that we were getting ready for that bright morning. 1938. Nearly 26 years ago now. We were leaving from Harrington Harbor, where I'd lived and worked the last few years before then. There were twenty-seven of us that were shipping out that morning, all mixed and matched. Me and a few lads I'd sailed with for nearly my whole life. Some boys from St. John's, a few from Ontario. Some Frenchies, of course. And Danny Squires. A boy of eighteen from Cape Britain. He'd been taking work on any ship that would take him. And now he found himself on mine. He was younger and greener than I usually liked, but he was a hard worker and strong-willed. I was younger than him when I'd started going out on the water so I didn't see the harm. And he was hungry, too, to earn and to learn. Every moment he could, he'd pester me and ask me about best business practices, how to lead, how he might one day have a ship of his own. That morning was no different, and he was stuck to me like glue until the moment we set sail. Oh, and Captain, another thing. Mr. Squires, do you not have anything else that requires your attention this morning? Well, no, sir, I don't. Oh, you don't now. Well, sir, you see, uh, last night I figured that when I got here in the morning, Mr. Butler would have me scrub the port side of the ship, as he usually does before we ship off. Well, sir, he did do exactly that, not realizing that I'd already scrubbed it last night. Is that right? Clever lad. Which is why I have the time now to ask you all those questions that I know you love to hear. Careful now, Mr. Squires. I'll only tolerate saucy behavior so far. <laughs> The look on your face. Relax, boy. Ask your damn question. Uh, uh, yes, Captain. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the route we'll be taking. We'll be going around the island. Yes, boy. Around the rock. You've only gone out fishing with us, eh? Yes, Captain. Well, this is a bit different. We'll spend some time in the Gulf, trawling for the crabs and lobsters those folks in St. John's love to suck on. It's off-season on the east coast of the island, and they'll be needing their fix. We can loop around from the north side of the gulf and hit every major port with our goods. Now there's a lesson for you, boy. Supply and demand. Yes, Captain. So we'll be passing by Cape Breton, then? Well, yes. On the way back, we'll be within spitting distance of it. That's where you call home, is that right, Mr. Squires? Yes. Do you miss home? Sir? Now relax, son. It's a simple question. Do you miss home? Well, I do, sir. I've been working... 
hard for nearly a year now, and it's been all that time since I've been home. Haven't seen my mother in Sydney or my brothers or... Or... Or, yes. Out with it. Well, sir, there's a girl home that I'm sweet on. And she's sweet on me, or at least I hope she still is. Hmm. Well, after this trip we'll be taking two months' leave. St. John's will be the last of the real grunt work. Smooth sailing from there out. We'll leave you at port there, and you can get yourself to Cape Breton. Captain, I... But you best be back in Harrington when we start again, or I'll have to find some other lovesick boy to take your place. Yeah, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Enough of that. Now get on and do some work, will ya? Danny Squires was as happy as I've ever seen a man that morning, and for the next few days after that. He took my kindness as an invitation to tell me about home at every chance he could. About his mother and his brothers, and his sweet girl. Emily, her name was. He never did see them. Any of them. The first week went as planned. We trawled as much shellfish as we could take on and sailed north as we always did. I must have made that trip a hundred times without there ever being a bit of trouble. But when we got to the northern pass of the gulf, the thinnest point between the island and the continent, we were set upon by a terrible summer storm in the dead of night. I've never seen anything like it on those waters since. Rain poured from the sky, lightning cracked all around us, and the waters roiled. It was all me and the men could manage to keep our ship from sinking, let alone keeping our course and our wits. And in all that chaos and that tempest, ropes snapped, sails swung wide, and barrels flew. It could have happened to any one of us, even me, but it happened to Danny. While he was helping the other men tie the cargo down, a tense rope on the mast snapped under the pressure of the wind and cracked the buoy. The deck was slick with rainwater, and the blow from the rope was strong enough that it sent him reeling back, slipping overboard. That's how it was told to me, at least. It wasn't for hours until the skies and the waters calmed, and it was for many hours more that we looked for Danny on those waters. We searched all night and all morning, but he was gone. It was a quiet trip from then on. We made our way around the island, making our stops, and I decided it best to stop on Cape Breton for a day, to deliver my condolences and Danny's final pay. His mother was a hard woman, and she only had hard words for me. There was for certain a sadness in her, but she was never going to show it. She just railed on me, and I took it. I had no right to do any otherwise. A fool, she called me, overconfident, stupid, incompetent, a charlatan and a traitor to the men that trusted me with their lives out on the water. I'll never forget. I'd never lost a man before, you know. I'd prided myself in that. I felt emotions I'd never felt before, a shaking of my confidence. After all that, and after those hard words of Mrs. Squires, I was never quite the same man. Not outwardly to others, not to my crew, but to myself. I was never the same man that I knew. But I kept on doing what I did. I had no choice. Sailing was all I knew. So I continued, trying to put ill thoughts out of mine and doing a decent job of it. It was only a year later, on another warm summer night, with waters much calmer, that it all came crashing down. Georgie, another one for me! And you, will you be having one? Hmm. 
<laughs> that was the part of the story that's easy to tell. It hurts. Aye, but that's normal. That comes plain and simple. It's not the part of the story that makes me question my senses, my memories, my conception of the world and what's real and what's not. No, that part comes soon. It was a calm summer evening, like any other. We were on the same trip we'd been on that stormy night, rounding up crab and lobster, taking the North Pass and looping around the island. And it was the same stretch of water we were on, the thinnest point between the rock and the mainland, passing Flowers Cove to the southeast, then Savage Cove, and then the Green Cove. There weren't many lights there at the time. Artificial lights off the coast, I mean. Come the middle of the night, you were met with this perfect kind of darkness. Not pitch black, but just enough light from the moon and its reflection off the water that you could see a few yards in front of you. Darkness that you could get lost in, but that didn't swallow you up. That's what it was like that night, as I stood on deck alone and looked out on those waters, trying not to feel as though Danny Squire's bones were staring at me from beneath the surface. And it was in that moment that I first saw it. A flicker at first, a speck of light off in the distance that seemed to come from the shoreline. And as I stared out at it, it seemed as though it were slowly approaching the ship, growing bigger and brighter by the minute. That pale, sickly green light, shifting and pulsing from just below the water's surface. I didn't remember it at the time, but in the days following that night I recalled a song that my nan used to sing to me as a boy. Here on the rock there's a place by the sea Where the water is clear and the mossy stones green And there in that place there's a cove and a cave A dark slimy hole carved out by the waves And be there at night and you see with your eyes From the murky dark waters a dim light arise Whatever you do, boy, don't look in that light. Run away, run away, boy, as fast as you might. For under the water is no place for men. The water's for dead ones to die once again. A nursery rhyme. Something to frighten children. It never quite made sense to me when I was younger, but... It would in those coming days. There I was on the deck of the Rosemary, entranced by this light as it drifted closer and closer to us. There were no other ships on the water, so it seemed to me that our ship was its destination. That thought might have unsettled me. It might have, but the closer the light came, the more a feeling of calm and complacency came over me. It was a feeling like tacky syrup weighing me down and getting into my mouth and nose, leaving me just standing there stupefied. And closer, and closer it got, until I was looking straight down the side of the ship at it, and what was once dim shining now lit me up like an oil lamp. It held there for a moment, for a small, silent moment, and then slowly and steadily a body rose from out of the water, a head, at first, 
followed in turn by the shoulders, the torso, the arms, all. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. There before me was Danny Squires, looking at me with baleful eyes. He had the bloated face of a drowned man, skin stretched and flesh bloated with water and gas. He glowed with the same sickly green light that it approached. It seemed as though he himself were the source of it. He opened his mouth, and no sound came out, not cry or moan or howl. But I could hear the words all the same, crawling into my ear. Come with me. And again it pounded in my mind. Come with me. And I wanted to. He extended his arm, mere feet for me, and I wanted to grab hold. The same force that calmed me now urged me to take Danny's hand. My arm raised and reached out of its own accord. But, as I grazed, just barely grazed, I snapped too. All those feelings of wrongness, everything in my body and mind that knew that this wasn't right convulsed and caved in on me, and I screamed. An awful, blood-curdling scream. Men rushed on deck and held me back. They must have thought that I'd gone mad, that I intended to jump overboard. And that... That thing slipped back beneath the water before they could come. I said nothing, but I cried and I watched it slink back away to the coast before they dragged me away and put me under. Oh, Lord. We finished the trip. My men finished the trip, made the sails, brought us home. I spent two weeks under the deck pacing and sweating and drinking just trying to keep myself from raving madly, trying to keep myself steady. We got home to Herrington Harbor all right. I paid my men what they were due, sold the Rosemary for half of what she was worth, and settled back onto the island, where I was born and where I'll die. For the better part of a year, I tried my best not to think about it. Not with great success, I might say. You can't imagine what it was like. Or maybe you can. I wanted to tell myself that it was a dream, a delusion. But deep down I knew it wasn't. The memory of that light, the crisp, clear details in my mind that never faded. And the brief touch of that dead man's skin. No, there was no denying what I had seen. And I thought of that song, and what it meant. I never told anyone what I'd seen, but I listened. I sat in taverns like this one and listened to the stories men would tell, no matter how outlandish they seemed. Many were local kooks that no one had ever listened to before, so they were always eager for an audience. Most of the tales I heard were nothing but fantastic bunk, but every now and then something would catch my ear. People going missing, sailors going mad, people seeing dead friends, drowned lovers out on the water. Most were spotty stories, all of them vague, but there was one thing similar to many of them. The place. That stretch of sea on the northwest end of the island, where the water is thinnest between the island and the continent, by Flowers Cove, Savage Cove, and the Green Cove. Here on the rock there's a place by the sea Where the water is clear and the mossy stones green 
After I'd heard a tale like that a dozen times, well... Well, that decided the matter. I didn't know what I would need or what I would face, so I brought everything I could think to. Knives, a pistol, a torch, acid, dynamite. I spent nearly my life savings on dynamite. <laughs> People thought I was investing in a mining venture. A few thought I'd gone completely mad. They were right in a sense. It was mad what I was doing, but I saw no other course. I had to find out what I'd truly seen that night and destroy it if I could. I arrived a few hours before dawn. As I said, I didn't know if I'd be using explosives, and I didn't want anyone nosing around if I did. The Green Cove, as you might imagine, got its name from the moss and algae-covered shores and rock face. Seaweeds and other plants would collect in the shallow waters, and as they flowed back out, the smashing waves would send them onto the cliff face where they'd rot and grow anew. It was a slippery climb down, but there was no other way to get there. There was no steady path along the sea level, and though the waters within were shallow, the inlet was deep and the waters around it were too violent to swim or enter by small ship. The center of that cove dipped in a line, rocketing down dozens of feet deeper than any other part, a line that dragged across from the exit out to the sea to the entrance of the cave. The main cave where a man could just skirt along the stone to make his way down its tunnels, seawater flowing deeply just to his side, just to my right, as I made my way down that twisting cavern. For a fleeting time, my fear turned to calm. I kept walking every second expecting my lamp to light up some horrible thing, some dead man. But every second passed without so much as a sound, but for the dripping water of the cave top. The part of me that wished for the world to be as I hoped was ready to turn around and go home. My lamp was growing dim, and I thought surely there was no point in continuing in for another mile. I thought there couldn't be anything past this point, this deep in the cave. I'd just get more oil ready and turn around now. But as I crouched to get it from my bag, and as the light's lamp was burning to its last few drops, it was just enough darkness that I noticed out of the corner of my eye a faint glow coming from further down the cave. A faint, green glow that I couldn't mistake. I cursed myself for being such a fool, cursed my weakness for wishing to make things so easy, and I continued on. And eventually, soon after, the tunnel came to an end. It opened up into a single chamber, wide and with a high cave ceiling. The stream of seawater flowed into the chamber and finally collected in a pool, a deep pool that there was no knowing the exact depth of. And the glow. I found that I no longer needed my lamp, as the entire chamber, the wall, the floor, all, were covered in a slick, tacky liquid, shining with phosphorescence, all of it shining with that sickly green light. And, as I slowly realized, all of it dripping into that still pool and giving it a brilliant glow. I stooped down to get a closer look at it. I had an idea of what it felt like from the way it stuck to the bottom of my boots, the way sap or muck will, but I still hesitated in reaching out to touch it with my bare hands. But I also knew why I was there, so I dragged my finger across the slick, cold ground. All at once a terrible rush of sensation came back to me, the same syrupy feeling I'd had that night the year before. 
the way it slowed me and made me content with whatever terrible fate I'd avoided. And more than that, the awful mental shock when I'd reached out and grazed Danny's... That thing's fingers. In that moment, the rush of emotion unbalanced me, and I lost my footing. I slipped, my lamp falling loose from my grip and hitting the ground with an echoing clang, then slipping down and tumbling into that pool in the middle of a chamber. For a long, terrible minute all was quiet, and I was frozen on the floor staring at the pool. And slowly, the water began to rumble, softly at first, then more turbid, then violently, and as I watched, stuck to the ground in fear, a familiar figure rose from the water as it had one year earlier. Once again, I was staring at death, and Danny Squire's face stared back at me, and all over again, I felt an awful calm and slowness, and then he opened his mouth, and again no words came out, but words I heard all the same. Come with me. But there was no crew who'd be coming to save me that night. So at the last of my fleeting consciousness, I knew what I needed to do. Mustering all the strength I had, I grabbed the knife at my side and I plunged it right through my left hand. Blood poured from the wound, and the pain waved through me, bringing me back to my senses as I hoped it would. The thing's bloated face warped into rage, and as I gripped my teeth through the pain, I saw what I hadn't seen the first time. What I'd missed while under the beast's spell. It was the face of Danny Squires. The body as well, but with the legs should have been, the body continued in one writhing mass of flesh that dipped below the water. The thing began to lash out at me, advancing and flailing its arms. I backed myself against the cave wall just beyond its reach, scrambling through my pack for anything to defend myself. It was my hatchet that I found first, and as the thing swung its body forward again, I swung down hard on that wriggling lower torso. The face turned to pained agony, still making no sound as its mouth distorted, and as I swung down again and again until I chopped clean through. What was left of Danny's body hit the ground hard, and the flesh that I'd freed of it kept lashing out blindly, almost like a severed tentacle, before it slinked back into the pool. For another moment, the chamber was quiet. Barely thinking from the haze of my pain, I didn't think twice about flipping over Danny's body to take a look. That final face of agony was still frozen on, but it seemed that the ghostly light had drained from his eyes, and the shine of his flesh faded to mere bloat and rot. I like to think, I like to hope, that if that truly was Danny, if it was, then I'd brought him some sort of peace from whatever watery hell he'd been in. But as my mind drifted to thoughts of burial and Christian rites, the waters rumbled again, and I realized that I wasn't done. That thing, what it truly was, wasn't done yet. Slowly, four figures rose from the water, all dead, all in varying states of decay, all glowing, and all with heads turned toward me. A man who may have been close to my age at the time, his eyes rotted away and beard hard and calcified from salt. An older man, dressed in priestly robes, his face more bone than flesh. A young woman, in a dress that may have once been white, the lower half of her jaw hanging by threads. And a boy, who looked to be of ten. 
all of them without legs, but instead those thick tentacles that continued into the water, all of them rising still, those tentacles rising still, until something else entirely began to emerge. Now, if you've seen my hands shaking, you'll surely know why. Because it's the dead faces that I see in my sleep, and which bring me nightly terrors in my dreams. But after all these years, I've learned to keep those visions to just that. Dreams. No. It's what I saw next that haunts my waking hours. Each minute of the day, graying my hair and shortening my life. The reason I'll never go out on the water again. As they rose, higher and higher... The tentacles grew thicker and began to merge into one thick cord of flesh. Four feet in diameter it looked like. And soon, what that cord was attached to arose as well. A fish? A serpent? No, a monster beyond reckoning. A body, round and soft-looking, of what I could see nearly forty feet long, with fins that fanned out in razor blades. A mouth as wide as its face, filled to the brim with needle teeth, if needles were the size of you and me. Tiny eyes, tiny for its size, pale and glowing with no pupils, and that cord coming from its forehead and arcing down, those dead things looking on me still. Maybe there was even more that was awful to it than that, but I ran before I could think to look any longer. Had I not stabbed myself earlier, had the adrenaline and the blood not been rushing through my ears, I may have been paralyzed with fear and devoured. Or worse. I ran as fast as I could back along that narrow path. For a split second it almost seemed not to notice, but as my foot came down hard on the stone and made a wet smack on sticky liquid, it turned to me and advanced. I could hear it behind me. I didn't dare look. The deep stream running along my path was narrow as well, but I could hear it behind me scraping through, just keeping pace despite its size. More times than I cared to count, I nearly slipped into the water, hearing the scraping get closer as it continued its pursuit. I did make it out, after what seemed like an eternity, my rope still there and safety close at hand. But as I turned, that beast burst forth into the cove, sending waves crashing ten feet high and sweeping me into the water. I thought I was dead in that instant. I was sure of it. I pulled myself to the surface, wondering why I wasn't already, and as I coughed up water and rubbed the sea from my eyes, I saw why. It was frozen. It was just sitting there in the water, frozen now, mouth agape and opening wider by the second. The sun had risen while I was inside that cave, and I hadn't even noticed as I'd run out. It was early and we were on the west side of the island, but the sun was high enough to be in full view. I could see its eyes burning, I could almost hear the sizzle, and just barely made out a high-pitched hiss over the sound of the waves. All at once it turned around and slammed into the cliffside, and then again trying to find its way back beneath the safety of darkness. Trails of Icarus blue blood flowed down the rock face, and I pulled myself up from the water as it retreated. I blasted the cave apart that very morning, destroying the entrance after going down as far as I dared to and dynamiting the caverns, then using the rest to destroy the entrance to the inlet itself, or the exit as I saw it. Tell me, 
Do you read nature books? Scientific journals or publications? I don't understand much of what they write, but I follow all the same. I'm always interested when they discover new sea life. All sorts of strange creatures that live on the bottom of the sea that seem to defy the laws of what a creature on this goodly earth can be. But then, what goodly earth would have on it what I've seen? What I've told you of? I've no doubt there's more like it out there. I've little doubt that the one I saw is still alive. There's no knowing how deep that pool was, if it leads to other underwater tunnels and out to the sea. There's nothing for you in that blasted cove. There's no adventure, no discovery, no treasure or glory. Even if it's death you seek, there's no guarantee of that either. Only something eternal and unknown, and far, far worse. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, with music composed by Alon Zitrin. This week's episode, The Blasted Cove, was written by Anthony Botello. Danny Squires was played by Louis Alexander Belay. The Wrong Station will be taking a one-week hiatus, but we'll be back two Sundays from now with another brand new episode. You can support The Wrong Station by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play Music, or any other of the many podcast platforms you can find us on. There's a lot now, I should really make a list of those. Anyway, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>